The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. Today, we talk about solutions, yes, actually solutions, to our affordable housing crisis. Jill Atke is the CEO of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association, and her organization has a plan to make housing affordable for people in this province. The affordable housing plan is a 10-year plan. It quantifies how large our housing gap is, the amount of government investment it would take to fill that gap, and it describes how governments should spend that money. This was a fascinating conversation because too often in this city and in this province, there's a lot of hand-wringing when the conversation turns to affordability. But this conversation is different. Jill has a solution. In fact, the BC NDP government has actually adopted parts of her organization's plan into their platform. And note that this is a province-wide plan, and it doesn't address all the issues. For example, it doesn't address zoning in Vancouver, which is another essential topic. But I'm excited because this plan represents to me a portion of the light at the end of the tunnel. Here's Jill. Jill Atkey, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on, Macy. It's very exciting to be here. So, I mean, let's start off with the context, a backlog of 80,000 units. We took a look and tried to quantify, and, and it's very difficult to do. So we tried to quantify all of those uh, purpose-built rental units for low and moderate income households that should have been built over the decades and weren't. And that's the figure we came up with, 80,000. Now, it's important to take just one very brief step back and remind your listeners that in the early 1980s, uh, private market rental developers virtually stopped building market rental housing because they lost federal incentives. And so prior to that, we used to build a lot of rental housing, and that stopped once the federal incentives uh, went away. And then in 1993, the federal government stopped funding new social housing, what we refer to as social or community housing. So housing for low and moderate income households. So between those two forces, we did not see a lot of uh, housing developed in British Columbia or really across, uh, across the country for low and moderate income households. And that's the figure we tried to capture with that 80,000 unit figure. You talk about when people, when there was no federal incentives to produce rental purpose housing, you said you, the market stopped producing it. And just to clarify for folks who are new to the conversation, I mean, I think I sort of imagine in my head that when someone puts up a, an apartment building, it can sort of be used to for sale to and folks can purchase individual units or folks can rent. I didn't really sort of think of development as being rental specific or sales specific, but that's that's something that is the case. That's that's very true. And, and the reason that a lot of developers were not building rental housing, so something that, that a, a person could come in and pay rent for. And, you know, when we think about purpose-built rental, think about all of those older 
um, purpose-built three and four-story walk-ups that you see in neighborhoods like Mount Pleasant, um, to some extent in the West End, and other parts of, of Vancouver, so around Commercial Drive, for example. That's exactly what we're talking about. Those all got built largely in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then we stopped building that housing. And um, and then the Strata Act came in uh, in the in the, I think it was the mid 1990s, and it made more sense for developers to be building uh, condos for sale. So something that you could purchase um, because they get their money out much quicker. Uh, and so that really showed us that role that the incentives played in, in encouraging uh, market builders to build uh, purpose-built rental housing. But also uh, that that sort of meets the the niche for some uh, some renters in the market. So people with moderate or sort of median incomes will normally have their needs met, their housing needs met in the uh, in the market. But we've always known that there's a role for government as well for lower and moderate income households. Um, and, and that's been true traditionally, and that's why that supply has been very important. But then at the same time, now that we've got such a constricted supply of rental housing, uh, people who are whose needs are not being met by the market, that share of the pie is growing and growing. So you could be making as a household 80 or $90,000 annually and still not be able to to find affordable rent. And that's the real challenge we're in now with the crisis. And that's the part that really, I think, I think really hits me hard because, you know, if, if a household is making $90,000 a year, I know I'm not going to call them low income, but we're at the point where we, they, they can't find housing in the market. That's, that's nuts. And I, the other part that's nuts is in the report that you put, put out, you said that we're looking at, we need to build 3,500 units every year for the next 10 years. Tell us more about that. Sure. So, so in addition to that 80,000 unit backlog that we talked about, and those numbers are province wide, so right across BC, because Vancouver is not the only place struggling with this challenge. Um, in addition to that, over the next 10 years, we know that through population growth, so according to the provincial government's own population projections, we know that uh, that will have more people moving into British Columbia. And that's a good thing. That's, that's what we want. That's how our economy thrives. Um, but in order to meet that, uh, that, that population demand, we need another 35,000 units over 10 years. So 3,500 units of low to moderate income rental housing to meet that new demand. So all told that 80,000 plus 35,000, we need 115,000 units of new purpose-built rental housing for low and moderate income households over the next 10 years. And now, of course, we're already three years into that plan. Um, and part of that development is underway, but we know that, that um, there are a couple of missing pieces in our plan that we kind of didn't pay enough attention to. Uh, and that's another piece of work that we're doing now. And just to emphasize that again, when you talk about that low to moderate income housing, we're not talking about just folks below, you know, say 40,000 or some fairly low amount. We're talking about folks in your report, you said up to $76,000 a year, households making up to $76,000 a year and 
again, if you know, if I were making seventy six thousand, or a friend of making sixty thousand, sixty seventy six. Sorry, pardon me, seventy six thousand dollars a year. I wouldn't call as low income. And it, and it's not. It's above the the median household income for renters. And you know, when we had a healthier rental market, those are the exact uh, types of of households and families and individuals who would rent for some time. And then they would probably go on to home ownership, either a single family house, townhouse, or or a condo. But now they're staying in the rental market because they've been priced out of home ownership. And so that's the relationship between the housing system. The reason we call it a system is because it is a system. What happens in one part of the system has an impact on the others. So for the first time in 50 years now, we've got... Um, renters who are staying in rental longer. So for the first time in 50 years, um, demand for rental housing has outpaced demand for home ownership. Uh, and that's another force that's, that's sort of working against us, people being priced out of home ownership, they stay in rental, and now they're finding they can't afford rent. And on top of all of that, we have at least 6,860 folks across the province who are homeless. And at least because we know that homelessness counts are undercounts and a good, we're guessing maybe about 2,000 folks in Vancouver, the city of Vancouver specifically. But we, again, we know that's an undercount. And it's just a striking amount of, I mean, a lot of suffering that folks in the province are experiencing. So, I mean, Jill, give us some hope here. Do you, see, you actually see a solution to this? We do. And, and you know, the, the frustrating thing with housing um, is that it takes time to build. So, you know, if you're to ask the 250,000 renter households in the province who can't afford their rent currently, people experiencing homelessness, and we know that the point in time count is an undercount, if you're to ask them, nothing is happening fast enough, and, and they're not wrong. We need every level of government to be responding to this as though we're in an emergency, because we are. What I will say is that in 2017, uh, the, the government that was formed um, was uh, committed to this housing plan that we've talked about earlier. And this is the uh, 2017, the provincial government. Your that's point. right. Yeah, so that's the provincial government uh, took office uh, signed an agreement with the Green Party, so the NDP took office, signed an agreement with with the NDP or the the Greens, and uh, and both of those parties were committed to uh, to backing this plan, and we're seeing the rollout of that now. So historic investments have been made. So more than any government, really, to my knowledge, in in any province in Canadian history, those investments are now being made. And back to my earlier point about the housing system being a system, they are really trying to craft or have been trying to craft a policy response for every point of that system. So new purpose-built rental, uh, new targeted mixed income housing for everything from shelter rate up, a, up to those moderate incomes we talked about. Um, but also very importantly, um, supportive housing. So permanent supportive housing and the 2200 or so temporary modular supportive housing units. I suspect that's why we didn't see a really significant increase in the last homeless count. What we saw was that the numbers uh, of people experiencing homelessness, and of course this is pre-COVID, had stabilized. 
And I think it's because of those investments. The only time we've seen that um, since 2002, previously when we started when we started doing the homeless counts, was the last time we had a major build out of supportive housing. So it really is making a difference, even if it's frustrating that it's it's not bringing down the numbers. Now, what we said during this last provincial election, uh, just last month, was that we need to keep committed to that 10-year plan, but we need those investments to flow much sooner. So within this next four-year mandate is when we want to see the build out of those units. And we did, uh, we've also been meeting with government prior to, um, to government being dissolved, um, was around the development of an acquisition strategy. So at the same time that we're building this new housing, we know we're losing a lot of that purpose-built rental stock because it's being sold uh, to investors. And so we've lost about uh, 34,000 units of that housing, renting below $750 a month. And, uh, and we need to be able to acquire that move it into the nonprofit and co-op housing sectors so that we can maintain those rents as affordable rents in perpetuity. And that's something that we'll be working with government on. Jill, as we start talking about the solutions you've outlined in the plan, can you give me the broad strokes vision here? So in seven years, the plan will be complete, hopefully. Um, and if it is, can you really send, like, bring it down to the ground for me? What does that look like for someone? Who, what could that look like for someone who's on the streets now? What could that look like for someone who's in their 20s trying to find a home or a family with you know, two, three kids? So if the plan is fully adopted and realized, uh, what you would see is, is right across that spectrum of, of people who are, who are facing challenges in the housing market. So everyone for, from somebody experiencing homelessness can now be housed with the appropriate supports that they need uh, to, to maintain that housing. Uh, once they no longer need those supports, they'll be able to move into community housing where, uh, where they can live independently, but at a rent that's affordable to them. For somebody who, uh, who earns an income, uh, you know, a mid-range income of, um, uh, you know, say you've got a teacher uh, and and a firefighter uh, working uh, or, or living together and, um, and seeking housing. Uh, that's a that right now is is considered a moderate income household. They can be housed in the community housing sector where their rent will only go up as their incomes go up. Uh, and so that's affordable housing to them and and they can build a life there because they've got stability. They don't need to be moving um, uh, moving uh, their kids to different schools every time they get an eviction notice because their building is being redeveloped, for example. Uh, and so right across that continuum, we will have much more stability, but we need a, a significant amount of investment, both to save the existing stock that we do have and invest in new supply. The province has committed to this 10-year strategy, but we also need the federal government uh, to come to the table in a really serious way and deepen the affordability of some of these projects that we're building. And municipalities have a really important role to play through contributions of land and ensuring that when these projects come forward for approval, um, it means housing at the end of the day for a family or an individual who's, who's 
um, either suffering without housing or who's in inadequate housing right now, they need to be approving these projects. Maybe you can help um, explain to me, Jill, my read of the plan, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that a large focus is acquisition of buildings and investment in new buildings and then have that ownership be um, in the hands of nonprofit organizations or housing cooperatives. And can you, can you tell me why that is? Because again, as sort of someone new to housing policy, when I think of ownership of a building, I think a company or a property management company, why, why is there so much of a focus in your report on nonprofit and cooperative housing? What does that even look like? Well, we know in our sector that what gets developed and managed for the, the life course of that, uh, that building and the land in perpetuity, when it gets developed at affordable rates, it stays affordable forever. Uh, and that's not what we see happen in the market. And there is an absolute role for the market in meeting uh, the, the uh, housing needs of many, many people. So it's not to disparage the market. But their mission drive is not toward affordability. I'll give you a really good example. There's a building um, called Arbutus Court over in Kitsilano. And in 2005, it was a market building, 21 units, three-story walk-up. Um, and it was in decent shape. And a group, uh, a nonprofit group, came in and purchased that building. And, um, and so rents were $750 a month. Uh, here, 15 years later, not only were they able to maintain those rents at $750 a month, but they've turned that into a rent geared to income building. So no one pays more than 30% of their income on rent. And rents range from $475 a month up to about $1,300, depending on, on the individual or the family's income. And if that building had stayed in the market, rents for those one bedrooms would be in the $1,700 or $1,800 range today. So that just demonstrates in a really clear way in my mind the mission drive toward affordability. Do you see then the bulk of rental uh, specific housing in this city? Do you see it if we could, I mean, ideally wave a magic wand and say should, would you say that they should, the majority of that housing should be in the hands of nonprofit housing operators? You know, where when I look at different parts of the world where they've managed to secure more affordable housing uh, at affordable rates in perpetuity, so within the nonprofit or government sector, I would say in a city like Vancouver, if we had, so right now we're less than 10% of the share of all housing uh, in the city of Vancouver we realistically need to be in the 30% range. And this is not an unusual or wild figure. Uh, people right across the political spectrum have said the same thing. In that 30% range, um, in order for us to be able to turn the corner on this affordability crisis and to ensure that whether you're a low-income earner, um, you're, you're struggling on income assistance with, with very low rates, or you're, you're working in the profession of your choice, that we have that range of individuals. So it's that diversity of, of individuals who, who make the city what it is and, and a vibrant city. And we're losing too much of the affordable housing stock 
to make that re a reality. So that's what we're really focused in on now is making sure we, we build out our share of the stock so that we can provide homes for, for people who need them and a broad range, um, a broad range of individuals to reflect the diversity of our communities. So Jill, let me ask you about the role of municipal government specifically, because I think I understand that from the federal and provincial governments, we're looking for money, we're looking for investments, hopefully, and other things, but largely investment. Can you talk about municipal governments and how, what they need to do? Sure, absolutely. Now, municipal governments have a very clear role to play in housing. It's one of the few areas of uh, social policy where they've got specific tools at their disposal to make a difference. So one of the things that we look for from municipalities when we're talking for them is contributions of land. That goes a long way uh, to achieving affordable housing. It doesn't do it by itself. Uh, we still need other levels of government there. We look for um, tax exemptions uh, in order to bring down rents. And we look for uh, development cost charge waivers. So development cost charges get added on to new developments. Some municipalities are very, very good at waiving those in order to bring down rents because all of the costs that go into building affordable housing in the nonprofit sector get passed on to tenants at the end of the day without a direct subsidy from government. So anything a municipality can do to, to waive some of those costs actually has a, a real consequence for the rents that people pay at the end of the day. Um, we've got one of our members, uh, Macola Housing Society, has looked at uh, a number of projects uh, from municipalities around the province. And if they can get those things, so a contribution of land, tax incentives, uh, uh, waiver of development cost charges, they can bring rents down by as much as $30 per unit per month. So it doesn't sound like a whole lot, unless you're struggling to make ends meet, then $30 at the, at the end of the month, an extra $30 in, in somebody's pocket actually does go quite a far way. And then some larger municipalities also make a direct contribution. So for every new unit of housing built, they will make a cash contribution toward that new housing. Not all municipalities can do that, but that certainly helps with the rents at the end of the day. Can you talk specifically about what you're, you would like the City of Vancouver to do? Sure. City of Vancouver is a great example. They've been incentivizing um, uh, purpose-built rental. They've been incentivizing nonprofits to build more rental. They are waiving charges. They're, so they're doing a lot of the things that I just talked about. One of the uh, focus areas for them right now is on acquiring SROs, so older uh, purpose-built stock. You're very familiar with them. They're in the neighborhood of, of co-op radio. So, so SROs um, where rents, I mean, Wendy Peterson and the SRO Collaborative have done a phenomenal job of tracking the rents uh, of those SROs and how much they've moved away from shelter rate, which is just $375 a month. Uh, and the city has put forward a couple of very bold mot motions, um, unanimously approved, to purchase those buildings. And we've known that this works. Uh, this was done about 10 years ago. Uh, about 34 buildings in Vancouver were purchased. Uh, and those have been renewed and are now run as affordable housing. So we're very, very supportive of a motion like that. Um, can I ask you then about um, 
upzoning in Vancouver. There's a lot of talk about whether Vancouver is dense enough or not, um, and capturing the lift in land value when um, when a na- neighborhood is rezoned. If a neighborhood is rezoned from single family homes to condominiums, then then how many homeowners will see the prices of their land rise? And there's talk about how in Vancouver we have too many single family neighborhoods. What do you make of that? And what's your position on density in Vancouver? Well, I think what the situation we're in now, because so much of our land is zoned for single family, so in the range of 70 to 80% of all residential land is zoned for single family. So it is illegal to build anything other than single family home, potentially with a secondary suite, but that's an option, and a laneway house, also optional. Uh, And we've got a growing population and we're very geographically limited. We're not a city like Calgary where we can just grow forever. Um, And so it's, it's it's a challenge for communities experiencing change, uh, but it's not a challenge that's unique to Vancouver. Uh, this is a conversation happening in San Francisco and Portland, where they've had statewide um, uh, legislation come in, essentially banning single-family zoning and, and putting that pressure on municipalities to, to say, we need to be doing things differently to, to accommodate growth. Growth is going to be important for, for our economy and for the diversity of our communities. And and so I, I very much believe that we need to take a look at single family housing and to give people a range of, of housing options. You mentioned a couple of them, townhouses, um, either stacked or row houses to give people that that option, because right now in most parts of Vancouver, you can choose single family or you can choose a condo if you're looking to purchase a home. And so I think it's it's a conversation that the city has been having and in my mind in the future there's no way uh, of us getting out of um, taking a very serious serious look at single family zoning and and determine who it's working for um, who it's excluding and what can be done about it in terms of uh, revisiting the zoning. I look so much forward to that, those 114,000 new units that are supposed to come soon and hopefully they come soon. Jill, thank you so much for your time today and for your work. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun, Macy. Take care, Jill. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Jill Atke. Jill is the CEO of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association, and she talked about her organization's plan to make housing affordable for people in this province. And that's it for today. You're listening to The Pulse on CFRO, your super local morning news show here on Vancouver Corp Radio 100.5 FM. I'm Tan Macy. As always, please tell us what you think of the show. We are curious. I'm at Macy at coopradio.org. That's M-E-I-X-I at coopradio.org. Enjoy the weekend. Stay dry and take care. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.